Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will soon be joined by Chris Osmar. We are experts on the secret state police, the Gestapo, or political police in Nazi Germany, and this week we'll be concluding our discussion, or rather it's more of a protracted argument, about resistance and criminality in the city of Cologne on the Western Front during the end phase of the war. We'll then be moving on to discuss some of our own research about what lessons the security services took from the so-called fall crisis that we've decided to start calling it, and uh, move on to conclude the discussion. We hope you enjoy it. The question is whether this is principled resistance against national socialism, or whether this is a series of people struggling by various means to survive, and I'm, you know, and... <laughs> occasionally getting drunk and going out and just murdering people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Steinbrook and Lawrence's case. So where, it, it, and the other ones, the other shootings primarily being the result of being caught in the act of theft, which is in that case an act of survival. So mm-hmm. where where does that put his core claim? Because really I think that the skepticism your point seems to run counter to Rusenik's conclusions because if he, he is being skeptical and saying the interrogations are setting the, the agenda or the perception of organized resistance, the expectation of organized resistance among foreign workers, Osterbeiter who are considered communists and these communist fences who are still hanging around. Uh, and this guy who's engaged in these political murders must be some type of principled resistance to the state. And he's skeptical of that claim. And he goes into great depth into how most of the activity that they were engaged in was, in fact, survival or criminality that was about self-enrichment or, you know, again, survival. So I, I guess I, I don't understand... What I'm struggling to see is how this affects the argument, right? Because if you're saying that he's not skeptical of the expectation of resistance, I think that's exactly where he is most skeptical. Oh, yes, he is. No doubt. Uh, but so where, where is he insufficient? Where he's not skeptical, skeptical is, is when he fleshes out the backgrounds of people. Sepp's uh, anything that makes them look like a criminal. And I'm not saying that they weren't engaged in criminal activity. This is another aspect of how the Gestapo is looking at this whole population. A a criminal population. uh, That they're a gang. Uh, And this attitude, I, I think, is 
is developed in the partisan war and it's imported here. Mm -hmm. uh, the the idea that they've taken up arms, they are not legitimate combatants, they are criminals. Uh, and he just kind of accepts that. He doesn't he doesn't use the same skepticism when talking about the background of the important characters, their criminal background, that he does when he's talking about the Gestapo's idea that this could be organized resistance. Well, I mean, Steinbrook and Laurent get drunk, go drive through the town, and end up shooting blindly into a crowd. And they luck out and hit a Hitler youth. And then they later shoot an SA guy who chases them, or that they encounter on a bicycle that night, right? Like, it's not like they chose those victims. They shot one dude because he was wearing uh, boots. 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 Yeah. That looked like Nazi boots. Like, that looked like SA, uh, the Stiefel. So, I don't know. I guess, I, 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 is what you are suggesting, Chris, that there is, in fact, principled resistance among these groups? Mm -hmm. I'm suggesting that criminal element has been of their activity has been too easily accepted uh, that stealing butter as evidence or just trying to survive uh, rather than evidence that they are trying to gain the resources to resist and I'm, and and I don't want to take a position that they are actually resisting uh, I just think that it, it could bear a little bit more critical examination but there's no organization. I mean, Steinbrook backs out. A, every time that Steinbrook is offered an opportunity for principled resistance, he backs out. Right. True. Like, he, he has a connection with the National Committee of Free Germany that he breaks off the moment they ask him to do something about the the um, the flyer action. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he, he very explicitly. Yeah, their big windfall uh, butter heist. Uh, he doesn't use that money to help foreigners or, or to organize. He doesn't sure. he doesn't maintain connections with the NKFD. He doesn't he doesn't organize with foreign workers. He has a connection with a guy that he knew from a labor camp, right? Who happens to be connected through this nexus point at the Clayfish camp to these other groups that are engaged in their own separate battles. So uh, I, I think when you when you lay it on a page, you know, if if you want to be talking about principled resistance, you would have to be talking about, and then the the primary connector between all the other groups outside of the Clayfish camp is Jensen and Mutter, and there there are criminal fences, right? Like, so it's 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 not that this isn't a question of survival, but it's it's like there's a question of what point whether it's criminal or whether it's survival, right? I would tend towards the view that Steinbrook crosses into the criminality side of things when he just decides to get drunk and shoot into a bunch of random, like shoot into a random crowd. Right. Um, mm. But you're there's There's the question between whether it's survival or whether it's criminality on a group by group basis, but you don't have the type of organization, even under interrogation, uh, even under torture that gives the impression that there is organized resistance. Sure. But I wonder if there's not another way that we can understand them. And, and, and I'm just I'm just spitballing here. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's fun. Same, well, if we didn't, we didn't have something to argue about, it'd be a boring conversation. But yeah, yeah. Uh, 
if we had the same kind of structure going on, several loosely connected groups uh, engaging this kind of activity, but it was in, in Cologne, what would we call this? But if it wasn't where? If it was in if it was in the east, if it was in Belarus. Well, the Soviet historiography would call it resistance movement. We call them partisans, right? Uh, I don't know. I like. I think that this is what's interesting about this character to that. But um, I mean, there's also a lot of research about how a lot of partisans were also just bandits and criminals, mm-hmm. and that there was a separation after the war as they were moving, as the Soviets were moving in, sorting out people who were desert, who were deserters, and who were partisans, right, and who were bandits. Sure, so I, I don't, but, I, I don't think that you can. What I'm, I don't know. what I'm trying to get at is, if you are the the Steinbrook group, even before the Nazi hunt. It is. It's a small organization. It's people that are are regularly working together uh, towards one goal or another, whether it's the survival or or just trying to get your beer money. Um, there there are all these different groups that are living. They've rejected the society that they're living in, and they're doing it in opposition to uh, a regime that does not embrace them, and they do not embrace of a military conflict and they've taken up arms more than just survival it seems to me not at all i mean that it is your alternatives at that you have to look at what the alternatives at that point are right and also that you're looking at if the the view in september and into early october is very different from the view that it becomes in kind of November when things have faltered and the front line is stabilized and the pacification operation is cracking down in Cologne and order and control is restored. They think that they're going to be there any week, right? Sure. Yeah. But they're not, they're not organizing I, oh. attacks on strategic materials. They're stealing some butter, right? Like, um, yeah, but, but I think it's also important to, to ask, why they're there in the first place because they don't because because they don't want to do forced labor right like they don't they don't want to do forced labor they don't want to work on a flat crew they're deserters largely and they're people who are avoiding the sort of like forced forced labor or civil defense conscription right that they got Mm -hmm. but uh I don't know. Like there, there's there. That's why I'm saying this is a spectrum between criminality and survival. But I don't think, I don't think that there's evidence in this that shows that that spectrum it sort of extends for any of them into an attempted at organized resistance. Apart from the NKFD, who who are quite explicitly explicitly about preparing a political structure to meet the Allies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, there, there's no question in that case. And they're also the only ones who take any action to try and convince anybody else, right? I'm, Everybody else I, is buying, I, selling, stockpiling, and hiding. Well, there's there's this there's these two guys uh, at the Clayfish camp, uh, the two Ivans, uh, Sawozan and Trofino, who were basically giving a recruiting speech. When Kazemba showed up, uh, but they're telling everybody that uh, if you need to stop working for the Germans, people that work for the Germans are dumb. You 
you know, you not only do you support the Germans, they said that, not, not only is what you're doing supporting the enemy, uh, but, you know, you could also live a whole lot better, have more food, better clothes, if you, you know, leave, leave work and, you know, come run with us and see what you can find out in the ruins. They were actively organizing. They were people. See, they, this, this meeting that they held when they said this, they, they say this and then they, they leave the meeting and they come back with like cheese and sausages and give it to everybody. Show them like, look what you can get. If you come with us. Right. But this Saturday is, night. this is a difference between resistance and survival. Resistance isn't just about refusing to take to take part. Right. That falls under the spectrum of nonconformity or dissent. If you, if you're raising your voice in opposition or just, you know, resistance is taking action against right i told you about eisenhower's broadcast on the, the 25th of september yes. which was the day after the these guys showed up with their cheese and their sausages and, and their butter and all that to show everybody the the big life they could have if they leave work okay uh, and on the 14th of september eisenhower also sent broadcasts and what he's telling foreign workers to do go into hiding lay low and organize and we'll give you more instructions later. And that's exactly what these guys are doing is they're trying to get foreign workers to leave work and go into hiding and organize. Hmm. Allies have been telling them to do that. They've told them that this is your resistance. You get together, you stop helping German industry and your D day is coming. They, they, they phrase it. There's certainly, there's certainly clear evidence that everybody at the clayfish camp was in one way or another arming themselves. Mm-hmm. However, there were also more or less execute execute on site orders against anybody who was apart from where they were supposed to be if they were a foreign worker, right? If you're outside of your camp, especially if you're outside of your camp with weapons, then and if there's any if you are a gang, if you're one of these criminal gangs, right? If you're a plunderer, then that's that's an execution. So you need weapons to defend yourselves. But that had really only started pretty recently. And and I don't think you can expect that they knew that. Uh, I, I, if, you're, if you're caught in act of looting, you could expect that you're going to face an execution. Still had identity papers and they caught you. You're going you're gonna to spend some time in an AEL and you're going to go back to work. That's the experience that they they'd had for years, and I don't think they had a real reason to expect anything terribly different at this point. I mean, yeah, they they see the catastrophe, I'm sure. Right. Uh, it wasn't until 20th of September, Cologne Gestapo, the Aachen Gestapo, uh, have the authority to just shoot plunderers. 20 September, uh, the Cologne Gestapo gets that authority. Okay. Cologne and Aachen. Yeah. Is that the one from? Is that the order from Gutenberger? And then uh, November one, Himmler gives gives a general order to to anyone uh, who it is encounters a foreigner. Or no, no, it's just it's just an Eastern worker, an Eastern worker of Pole. Okay, looting to kill them without having to uh, get permission from the RSHA. Uh, but there already was a local permission for. The front area for for Aachen and Cologne to do that. So that was very very come new. through before. Was that the order from Gutenberger? Yes. So 
but I so what you're saying is that all of these foreign workers are engaged in resistance. I don't want to I don't want to quite go that far with it. Uh, but some of them are. And each camp was a place where that kind of organization, organization for resistance was going on. Because uh, a lot of the people there were still working for the Germans. Uh, that's why these two guys, these Ivans, show up and tell them to stop. And they, they show up on a Saturday night, better have Sunday off, mm-hmm. so they can get drunk and stay up late and listen to what these guys have to say. And if they like it, maybe they won't go back to work on Monday. Zemmler totally buys it. And he winds up you know, shooting uh, the police inspector. What's his name? Uh, Scheiber? Schiefer. A few days later. Schiefer, okay. But Schiefer, I thought, okay, what are the circumstances? Because the circumstances of the shootings are important, right? Like Lawrence shooting of Suntingen is a premeditated attack. Is Kazemba rumbled in the middle of a theft? Or is he? does he go out and find he, this guy he and was, shoot him? Uh, he was doing target practice to prepare to participate with these guys. And with his own gun and tries to hold Kazemba, like hold him at bay while he tries to contact the police and Kazemba and another guy make a run for it. Uh, and he gets away, but he decides that he still needs to finish his target practice. My, my read on Kazemba is that, I mean, he was, I think he was 18 years old. Right. Uh, he probably never held a gun before. He had just left his workplace. He was terrified. And what he needed to do was figure out how to shoot this gun. Uh, so after he got away, he went back into target practice again in the park. And some Germans heard him. They said, hey, stop. He ran away. The Germans said, stop that guy. And this police officer comes out and because I'm a shot. Uh, so it was not a political murder. But that's why I'm asking how these people found themselves in the situation in the first place. Well, but see, this is what I this is the problem that I see with this line of argumentation is that you have people who are caught in extraordinary circumstances that demand survival, and we are ascribing political motives to them after the fact. And what you are seeing in that case is somebody who needs to know how to use a weapon, because if they're going to, if they are going to abscond from their place of work, they're going to leave their assigned work camp, and they are not going to go back. They're not going to show up because they don't want to be bombed the next time that Cologne is bombed. And they think that they can survive long enough until the allies survive or until the allies arrive. Then, yeah, you need to know how to use a weapon because once you're caught as part of a gang who is plundering in order to stay alive, that's really obvious what's ha- what's happening there. And you are going to face a firing squad for that. Or you, you know, you're probably just going to be shot on shot on sight after 20 September, right? So, um, but they don't know that. They don't know that they're going to face summary execution. That's the whole point of these public hangings, is to show everybody what happens if you do this kind of thing. But the, no, that's that's when you get into that's not a summary action. That's a demonstrative kind of that's theater, right? That that's the public message, but you gotta. Well, I don't know. In my mind, you have to be seeing summary violence starting to to manifest immediately after that. After that order comes out, that gives you a full six days before Kazemba shoots Schiefer. Mm-hmm. What for them to figure out what's going on? Yeah. 
Well, there was an execution in Cologne in the Andrew Room. There were a few. I I I sent you that uh, those few pages about. Mm-hmm. And Which I still have not gotten around to reading yet. I'm sorry. What's that? I still haven't gotten around to reading them yet. I'm sorry. Oh, it, it's no problem. Um, but there's there's this document that that covers 80 executions between September 21st, the day after this 20th September order, uh, and uh, November 3 in December. Um, You've but they're silent. Pretty infrequent. We're talking one or two every couple of days. Hmm. And I don't believe there was one in Cologne. Uh, so a reason to expect that if they were just found hiding out, they were going to get shot. They probably expected if they were found with a weapon and a stolen truck full of, you know, let's say butter, since that seems to be the thing everybody was stealing, uh, mm-hmm. that, that they may get shot at that point. Uh, what they're afraid of is getting sent to a work education camp and then being put back to work. That it's not necessarily, or at least subjectively for them. I, I don't think that that's what's so much in their mind uh, as not wanting to be a part of it. Yeah. That is resistance. Not wanting to be a part of it or thinking that they can, that this is their chance to keep their head down until the allies arrive. That, because I that mean, that's, that's leaving work for, for an Eastern worker, leaving work by itself is resistance. No, 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 no. It's not. Yes. It's not. That's, that, that's no, what not. the allies are telling them. The allies are broadcasting messages, they're dropping leaflets, and they say, this is how you resist. You leave work and you go underground. And that's that's exactly like what that's doing. like the Bavaria project definition of resistance or resistance, right? It's like, oh, I got hung over and I didn't show up to work. I'm resisting. Like, huh. I, I that's too far reaching. Resistance. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you that, that that you can take it too far. Um, but it's it is something else besides criminality and just the there is a little something extra there in the motivation. No, I think like I think that you're I think that you're seeing what you want to see. Right? Like I, I think that if you're I, I'm I have no doubt that there are some people that are involved in that, right? But if you're if you're talking about it, I think that that's something that you're getting down to like the individual level of how they're conceiving of their actions. And at that point you're not meaningfully talking about resistance, right? You're talking about a bunch of people who are awaiting liberation why they're doing what they're doing what yeah and and because they know that if they stay that they're going to be moved around and that they're going to be bombed and that i mean it's it's not a good life as a foreign worker if i can just hide out for a week then i don't have to worry about the germans moving me deeper into the country i don't have to worry about you know being bombed by the allies i don't have to worry about you know, terrible rations. I can go, I can live in the basement for a a week, a few weeks, a month, and then I will be free. I mean, there is a simpler explanation. You know, if it, if it sounds like a horse, then it's probably not a zebra. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I I guess is sort of like the point that I'm driving at, uh, in that I don't think like, if if you're just trying to survive, mm -hmm. what's your best play? It is it to at that and, point, uh, but that's that's the that's the difference the of late September. Absolutely, 
right? If you're best, if you're if you're playing for survival, you think the allies are right over the next hill, then hell yeah, you you find a group of guys who you can go and you know hole yourself up in a basement, get enough food to survive until they get there, and you know have the weapons in case they try and rearrest you, and then mm-hmm. you wait, right? Like, and I mean there that if it was resistance there would be there is ample opportunity to disrupt communications and transportation and logistics in cologne mm-hmm. which is a staging center and that is not happening it is small individual actions under cover of darkness to survive and i i think like i don't know i i don't i i don't think you know I I don't know. I, I don't buy what, it. I guess. What you're saying is, is <laughs> what, no. What what you're saying is fair. Um, but I I I feel like on this three piece breakdown of possible motivations that it's it's criminality, survival, or resistance. Mm-hmm. There's something else that is there it? is a end of society that they have been thrust into. Uh, Taking action, get away from it. Just more than survival. Okay, like let's imagine. Let's imagine you're in a work camp. Oh, sorry, I thought you it broke up again. I was more or less finished. But what I'm saying is that uh, they they were taking real action to um a system that they reject. They weren't necessarily trying to bring down that system. But uh, they were no longer participating in it. And remember, their their role in the system is to to advance the cause of Nazi Germany, and just not doing that anymore. May, okay, maybe it's not resistance. Do you think most um, foreign workers are structuralists? <laughs> <laughs> well, come on, they all knew what they were doing. They had all asked themselves if they were collaborating, and they all knew that they that they could just run away and not participate anymore. And a lot of them did. When though? When did they run away? Usually after bombings or during bombings. Like, I mean, yeah. look at look at your life as a foreign worker, right? Like, let you've got you've got a cot in a camp in a barracks. You're underfed. You're mistreated like you're kept at arm's length from the population and you're kind of marched to and from work where you work long hours and you know are sort of at the whim of every german around you and then all of a sudden it looks like the i mean you can get the reports from midsummer where they recognize that the treatment has changed and it's getting harder and that the allies are going to be here soon and it's going to be over by Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you've got all of these people streaming back and retreating into Germany. And, you know, to some extent, some of them are going to be informed of Eisenhower's announcement through foreign radio and, and the rumor mill. So they know that it, it's coming any day now. Are you going to, are you going to stay in your in your lightly guarded barracks where you can walk out right um and, and and stay there and continue to work in a location where you're a prime target for a bomb or are you going to go somewhere where 
you can, you know, wait it out. Like, well, I, I just, I, I think that there are much more, I, I guess my point is that there are much more immediate concerns about survival and about nutrition <laughs> that uh, I, I would be surprised to see principled resistance in that situation. Well, but there were, there were also a whole lot of these guys that left work, but then what they did was go out into the countryside, find a farmer, and work for them. Right. Uh, because you know, there's a lot more food in agriculture than there are in the bombed out evacuated cities. Right. Uh, right. But if you do that, you're still contributing for the Nazi regime. Whereas if from the system altogether, fit of you know, have being able to point at an employer saying, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still working. You, you don't have to call me off to an AEL, uh, a work education camp. Uh, and you also are probably going to survive. You're not going to face the bombs. Uh, you are going to have enough food. That's an option. You know, instead they went underground. But it's not an option in the fall when half of the evacuation get out of the city. Yeah, but Chris, the western bank of the Rhine is being evacuated at that point. It's not an option, really. Well, these guys decided that they had a better Another chance being able to go you find at a, a different employer uh, in a place where the situation is a little bit better. And they right. didn't try to do that either. Well, they all, yeah, but you, what? Find an employer in a situation that's better. Yeah. It could, everyone's desperate for workers. Show up at a lot of these firms and just ask for work and they know this it's been going on for a very long time that's another approach that they didn't take instead their approach was to ground get weapons and start robbing people well no they're not robbing people they're breaking into abandoned homes and fencing sure. the goods for food right like that seems to be a pretty steady way to survive in a bombed out city that used to have 700,000 inhabitants. Yeah. And you're and, down to 100,000. You can hide. Well. You can live, right? Yeah. 3,000 <laughs> Reichsmarks. So I, like, I, I get the sense that you're more dealing with people that are looking out, are trying to, are looking out for their self-interest and trying to find a way to survive to the end of the war. And that if you're talking that there are groups that are organized and you know, they're organized because when they're picked up, they, they give each other over and they have titles and responsibilities in one score. <laughs> what? No, no, sure. Go on. Uh, or, well, that they have titles and responsibilities and, and a plan, right? And nothing from any of these other guys gives the sense that there's a plan beyond hold out, find a place to stay, find a place to live, right? I mean, you could call it resistance, but it's not, it's not resistance in the strict definition of the term. And if mm -hmm. you're not going to use that term, then you should probably be using another one that actually describes what they're doing, which in my opinion is survival. Um, I, 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 I agree with you on the need for another term. But I like you're you're falling into the trap of Nazism, which is in a totally politicized society. Every action is political. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's just people trying to get by. And sometimes it's just people getting drunk and deciding and, you know, letting power in the f go to their head, right? Like this guy has made, uh, speaking of the Germans in this case, right? And Steinbrook specifically. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I, I just, I don't see somebody in that situation sitting down and coming up with a long, well thought out rational plan of action when you have an easy out which is, oh, bombing raid, right? I'll just waltz out the back door, thanks very much. What now? Uh, you know, well, these guys seems to know what seem to know what's up, and if we pool together, then that guy knows who I can sell this watch that I found so that I can get something to eat tonight. When, when you're looking at the situation, I, I don't think that you're thinking about much beyond that. I don't know. Uh, and, a, and like the exceptions well, are very my, I, my, my, my counterpoint to this is that the it is very clear when there is organized resistance because when there's organized resistance you know like there are secretaries and people huh. who ha are, are giving orders and plans and you know drafted statements and you know when when this we're waiting for this to happen like there's a course of action that people have planned out and i, I don't see that in any of the description of what rusenik's talking about all right what what i want to understand is what's the difference between and 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 i, would, I was just going to the, the clayfish camp i think that mm -hmm. it, i think that it, that clayfish camp is really interesting you've got yes uh. there that are still working and because it's entirely unguarded, there's also a group of Eastern workers living there who are no longer working. I just remembered they got caught because the owner who had the workers who were supposed to be there realized that there were workers who weren't supposed to be there. Yeah. Uh, but what's the difference between these two populations? They both have more or less the same background. They're living the same place, but they're living their lives very differently. But the clayfish camp was a way station. Continuing to work are are not doing that because they want to survive. Do they just have different interpretations of the best way to survive, or do they have different motivations altogether? Well, I think that kind you're dealing with people who have out. different. I think that you're dealing, and again, I just based on what Rusenix presented, I I think that you're dealing with people who have different survival strategies, mm -hmm. right? Like. And the other the other point is that the clayfish camp was primarily a way station. It wasn't a place for long term, right? Like it was for people who would stop in for a night or two and then move on to the next place, right? Like Mishka until he was taken in by um, Steinbrook. Yeah. So I, I mean, it has an official function, and there's mm -hmm. people living there that are fulfilling that official function. But it also and then it has, has it has an itinerant population that is moving yeah. through because it's unguarded, right? So I mean, so you just think survival different survival strategies explains the different behavior because there's one group that is taken puts them in more danger, takes them outside of society, uh, and involves violence. But it but you have to think about what the actual the risk versus value proposition is here. You think the allies are going to arrive any day, and if you stay in that camp, 
and you're in a big camp where you are under guard and you are managed, you can be picked up and moved, right? You're still under the Germans' control. Somebody who's yeah. working and living in an uncontrolled camp can pick up and leave, right? More or less it will. So they've got their rations guaranteed because the guy who owns the camp is on the hook for making sure that they're fed. And otherwise, they're more or less free to go about their lives other than showing up to work. And it's at a small concern, so it's not going to be any more subject to being targeted than general area bombing. Then compare that to somebody who is looking at a situation where they're in a large camp, they're specifically industrial labor, they're under lock and key and guard, and then all of a sudden you can, one, get away from the place that's constantly being bombed, right? That's a big one because you're at a location that is a target for bombs. Mm -hmm. And Although Ehrenfeld is very much being bombed also. Right, but you're talking about area bombing as opposed to when they try and hit a factory. Because the, the camps are next to the factories for mm -hmm. a large port, like, or at least that's what the regulations say that come out in June. So they're supposed to be attached to the factories. So, I mean, that in itself is you're, you're already weighing the risk of, am I more likely to be killed by the Gestapo or am I more likely to be killed for being an absentee or am I more likely to be killed by, a, you know, a, an allied bomber? And then the second thing that you're weighing is, well, then if I go outside, if I go outside this, I can live by stealing because there's this sort of parallel society, this criminal underworld that that is remained and or sprung up in the ruins. So why don't I just go live in a basement somewhere and, you know, take things out of abandoned homes at night? Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's a very low risk way to get away from a high risk situation. In my there mind, is at least another survival concern that's at work here, too, though. Um, mm -hmm. If you think the war is going to be over soon. And you may appear to be a collaborator. Soviets are going to do with you when they get their hands on you again. Mm -hmm. So if you're motivated by survival. It also makes sense it would to make sense not be to under the Germans' something. control. Yeah, I, I broke my contract. Look. Yeah. To do something that you can at least present as some form of resistance. Mm -hmm. um, or at least not. The, the motivation may have been survival, but it would be a drive to do something that makes it look like you were fighting against well, I think that there's a certain element of once you're an organized group, then you have to be armed, right? Like very quickly that becomes apparent. Yeah. And that like you're not take and when you're looking at the risk proposition, when you do think that the allies are right around the corner, if you can just make yourself a hard enough target, like, oh, those guys are armed, they're not worth dealing with. Yeah. Or yeah, you can I think fight for, your I think way for a lot away. of them, the idea behind having weapons was to hold out for those one or two days when yeah. the Allies got there, or when they were really close by, and some final sweep went through, final evacuation, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, that it wasn't the weapons weren't for some pr protracted struggle, 
but it was for one to you know, protect themselves until the allies actually got to them and rescued them. And that's that's not resistance, though, right? Like, I I mean, it, it's it's understandable and uh and absolutely in an extraordinary situation that's a that's a really good way to get yourself out of it right but um i i that doesn't fall that doesn't shade into resistance for me right that that has more that the gestapo's perception of resistance tells me more about how they view soviet citizens and how they view uncontrolled foreigners and their ideology and institutional culture than it tells me about the motives of those people. Okay, let, let's uh, let's turn this a little bit. Okay. Uh, resistance is a really tough term to work with. I don't think so. It's almost, I, well, but I mean... I think it only becomes difficult when you try and expand in. But okay, let, 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 let me just go with this. Okay. Uh, Let's let's throw away that question for a minute. Was this an insurgency? Which no. I think gets rid of some of the motivation questions, which are so tricky, mm-hmm. uh, and gets more at the behavior. So I say no. What say you? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that that possibly could be uh, a defensible interpretation of uh, because what you have is the militarized underground there are cells they are not organized with each other uh, they have their own way of doing things attacking the property and sometimes the people of the dominant the occupying even uh, force that's there but i think that's th- the key point is that they're not attacking, nor are they attempting to drive out a foreign occupying force, right? As you say, I, and I think the key point that makes the difference for me is that these weapons are not being used to engage in resistance in any way against the Germans. They're, they have weapons for self-defense. Well, remember, we're, we're throwing out resistance right now. That <laughs> we're not... Nothing about the the resistance. Uh, they are using the weapons. Leaving leaving aside, they are using the weapons for self defense. They are not using them to attack the Germans. Well, self defense while they're engaging in looting stockpiles. Well, let's not mix up the let's not mix up the Steinbrook group and the people who are plundering the ruins. Steinbrook is noti- notable pr- precisely because he is attacking or like he he is stealing supplies from depots okay uh but when kazemba gets uh caught by clayfish doing his target practice mm. getting ready you got to know how to use it well, obviously that's why he's doing the target practice uh, but i mean he needs to know how to use it in order to defend himself while he goes out and gets what he needs. Right, but I mean, that's kind of the point, though. He He's not setting an ambush and lying in wait and, you know, hijacking a truck, right? He's going into an abandoned building at night, and then he has a pistol to scare off anybody who disturbs him. 
and shoot anybody who tries to arrest him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even just that going after supplies, that's kind of an attack. It's, it's an attack on material rather than personnel. Well, but I mean, if you look at when, what happens with Mishka and what happens with Kazemba, I think the people, the people that you could make the best argument for being engaged in either insurgency or resistance are the Germans, but there is a lot mm-hmm. more evidence yeah. pointing in the opposite direction. I think the the people that you can make the best argument for survival rather than sort of, you know, illegal behavior. I mean, yes, they're they're plundering, they're looting houses, they're also caught in extraordinary situations, they're enslaved labor, right? Mm-hmm. So but it's not they're not I don't know, Chris, like they're not crossing the line into proactive behavior. They're not proactively engaging the Germans. They're trying their best to avoid the Germans and sure. live underground. Well, they're they're running an underground railroad. They're trying to filter organize and filter slave laborers out of their workplace and into safety. Mm-hmm. Because they think that the Americans are right over the next hill. Yeah. And I mean, this doesn't start until they think the Americans are right over the next hill. So what about it inclines you toward the view that there is some principled resistance, some kind of something that is more than survival in this? Well, the, as I've said, the fact that they, they have removed themselves from a role where they're contributing, uh, that they are doing exactly what the Allies tell them that they need to do, in order to do their part uh, and be ready for their D-Day of uh, carrying weapons. They are uh, running raids against uh, material. Uh, okay, may- maybe not principled resistance, uh, but more than survival. Word for word, what the Allies have told them that they need to do in order to play their part in bringing down the Nazi regime. And the Allies have actually explicitly told them that what you shouldn't do is disorganized attacks on Germans because the Gestapo will just catch you. Maybe not resistance, uh, but fulfilling the role that the enemies of Nazi Germany have assigned to them. Hmm. But I don't, I don't, I don't know, man. You got a <laughs> bunch of people hiding in basements and waiting until they can just hold out long enough, right? Like, it's it's a stretch to assign meaning to that. Why? Because you're dealing with individual narratives of survival. You're dealing with people who are thrust into extraordinary circumstances and you're trying to make them part of a larger political narrative. Hmm. Okay. And I, I just I'm I, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable because it's just sort of like I, I feel like you're trying to create a new myth, right? Like ha! that this is sort of like that there's something that there's meaning in this, right? That there, there's a political element in this behavior. And, um, and that because it sounds a lot like the Gestapo described them, it's just that they're on our side. Right. So, um, and, and I, I really, I don't think that that accounts for the way that, you know, a human being behaves in in a, a life or death survival situation like that. 
mm-hmm. right? Like the priority is not to die, right? And 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 not to. And I mean, like they know that if they get tossed into an AEL and like th- there's starvation and disease in these camps at this point, right? Like, so there there are all sorts of reasons not to stay in the AEL beyond a principled stand that you will no longer contribute to the Nazi war machine, right? Sure. So, um, and, and, and those seem like much more compelling reasons for me to take that risk and step outside the system than a political motive, which I, I struggle to see in the forefront of somebody's thinking in that situation. Then again, like you're telling me the story, like, Yes, it's used as an argument, but it's used as one inducement among many, right? So I'm I'm not denying that there's an element of it feels good not to make shells that are blowing up Russians, right? Mm-hmm. Um or or the people who are going to come liberate us or whatever. And that it it's good that I am no longer contributing to the resistance of Germany. But I think that it's a mistake to foreground that or to even define it as a uh, to that it's a defining characteristic of the behavior right i guess i i guess i, guess I, I think it comes down to a sort of like order of priorities here yeah in, in my mind i think you're right there i i i think that you're absolutely right that that the political motive was not number one it's it's a nice but it, it's it's your complimentary breakfast, right? <laughs> uh, or just yeah, desserts, and, and, and like were. I said, that is also part of the the survival motive, right? Uh, to in some way demonstrate that you have, for lack of a better word, uh, resisted participation, or um, even, even that if, if now is the hour of liberation, this will hasten it. Yeah, yeah. Nations for all of these people are very complex, and I don't think that we should entirely dismiss the idea that they were influenced by the good feeling of debating in German society, uh, no longer contributing to the war machine themselves probably did include these things right even if this okay this was the best way in their minds for them to survive Mm -hmm. i i think the the point that i've gradually been working myself toward is that it couldn't it's and the, the the real resistance in my mind to this idea is that but that seems of tertiary importance uh, because they because, may have because, in the same way absent that absent that this is this is the moment and that this is the way that I can survive, right? Uh-huh. Like the, it's not a it's, my point is that it's not the motivation, right? It's not a motive. It's uh it's a fringe benefit of in being engaged in this behavior, right? It's not it, it's not what was ever going to motivate them to step outside the system absent of an opportunity to survive and be liberated i i guess i'm comfortable with that uh, and and good evidence for that would be the fact that this kind of thing 
did not happen prior to didn't this. Didn't happen point. as much earlier in the war. It, it did happen, but oftentimes, uh, particularly the Eastern workers, just wound up working in, in another place. Right. Or, yeah, like you were saying, they step out and work for a farmer or something. Yeah. So what do we think about the Germans? Or did we have this conversation? Because I, I think that that comes down to sort of criminality. That, that I think, is much more clear with the Germans. At least most of them have some other kind of criminal background. Uh, well, let's talk about Steinbrook a little bit. I mean, he, he we keep bringing him up, but uh, yeah. talk about his background. The elephant in the room. Yeah, yeah he, he is fascinating he is this very much like raised uh, in an orphanage it's incredible yeah uh-huh. he's like i don't know he's he's like james bond man yeah and you can see why his pirate kids just revered him because his story is compelling mm-hmm. um but you no know, you know how, how did these people find themselves in this situation in the first place? Uh, and the way he found himself in the situation was that he was impersonating a Gestapo officer in order to try and get cheaper rent or something like that. Yeah, seems like he was not he, that he did not have a a strong anti-Nazism stance uh, earlier on, at least. Black hands. Um, Black. Black Hans, as his nickname ran. Here's here's something that's not in Rusnik, mm. but uh, recently, uh, this this camp in Cologne that Steinbrück found himself in. It, it was a uh, a Buchenwald, I think. Um, it was a a construction battalion. Uh, it was there to clear the rubble after the bombing. It, it was created a few months after that first thousand bomber raid on Cologne. Right. Battle of the Ruhr, they start defusing bombs, and Steinbrück apparently has a huge role on the, the bomb squad. Construction battalion slash bomb squad uh, defused 8,000 bombs during the course of the war. God. Steinbrück defused 900 of them so no way he was personally responsible for what what is that a a ninth of the total bombs defused by this this construction battalion good god can you imagine oh my god he clearly has an iron nerve yeah Uh, Here's the thing. When when this subcamp was established, before they started defusing bombs, uh, Steinbrück was sent there as a political prisoner. There were 300 people. The first five months, there was a power struggle between the political prisoners and the capos. And one of the capos got murdered that the, the camp was in operation. Mm-hmm. And this political prisoners resulted in the, the camp commandant removing all of the capos, sending them to Matzweiler. Um, and the political prisoners. Now, Rusinick points out that somebody testified that Steinbrook himself was a capo at the hmm. end of at the end of, of 43, I believe. 
uh, that's that's when this this person that testified in a post-war trial in Steinbrook as a capital. Uh, so factions, the political prisoners and kind of the old guard capos, the the administrators, uh, and the political prisoners had won out. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Steinbrook then becomes a capo indicates that he was probably involved. So that's interesting to me that uh, while, while he... Did Rusanek discuss how he escaped? You know, he escaped like three times. The only one I remember was the last time. I think somebody asked him to get coffee and he said, okay. And then he just never came back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This camp that he was in in Cologne, I mean, it was pretty small. It started at at 300 people and I think it expanded to 1,000 at at its largest. It wasn't wasn't terribly large. uh, And I don't think they had a whole lot of guards. Uh, I think in general, our our conception of the level of security in concentration camps, particularly sub camps, is vastly def- overblown. Yeah, it's it's defined by Auschwitz rather or or Dachau as opposed to yeah. all of the dozens and dozens of sub camps of Dachau, right? Like, uh, so I, I get I get the impression it wasn't terribly hard for him to escape, and the fact that he escaped and got caught again, and escaped and got caught again, and escaped again. Uh, shows you just about how much or how many consequences there were for an escape attempt. Right. Another thing that I think is really interesting about that he meets Mishka Finn, because uh, they meet there in that camp, concentration subcamp, but then they created on the same site. So you've got the Gestapo camp, the, the work education camp, and the SS camp or the, the WVHA camp, the concentration camp. Uh, and they're working together. Uh, you've got these work education prisoners that are side by side with concentration camp prisoners. And the only work education prisoners are not there indefinitely. They're going to get let out after like 56 days and they have a white stripe on their back. But other than that, they're doing all the same stuff. Right. And that's how, uh, and, Mishka and Steinbrook meet. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they meet. Mishka is an, a work education camp prisoner and Steinbrook is a concentration camp prisoner. But the borders between the two are starting to dissolve. Right. Camps are getting created and more and more work education camps are getting created. And in this case, being created in exactly the same place. And all under the same administration uh, within the Gestapo. It's not running the concentration camps. They're running the, the work education camps. This is, this is just a, a, a subcamp. Uh, my understanding is that the Gestapo was effectively security there. Right. In industry where... The guards are SS guards, but they've just been like in uh, in Krupp uh, in Essen. They've they've got a a sub camp on site, and it's it's a women's camp, so that it's all women guards. But they were just employees of Krupp that went and took a two week course in Ravensbrück and then came back. But it's the same people. It was Krupp people that were were running the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but in any case, what's fascinating about me here to me here about this situation is the way that these different systems of confinement came together, contact between personalities like Steinbrook, the German political prisoner, and Mishka Finn, the contract-breaking Eastern worker. And just that the borders are collapsing between the two. Yeah, yeah, that they're, they're effectively treated the same. They, they're allowed to interact with each other. They're doing the same kind of work. Uh, and I think... It's kind of implied that they're getting similar treatment as well. 
So in any case, that that's that's Steinbrook's last the so, above board German society is in the concentration camp. Uh, and then he escapes and that's when he well he doesn't really go underground. At first I mean he he goes into hiding basically, but he's he's yeah. living off of uh Cecilie's or Cecily. How do you pronounce her her name? I don't know. Cecilie. Yeah. Cecilie. Uh, anyway, he's he's living off her welfare check until so yeah, and running running this sort of like way station for strays and uh, you know Jews on the run and various members of the and, Edelweiss pirates. And Edelweiss pirates, yeah, that that just it seems like just want to hang out and listen to the stories. But it, it kind of that that whole setup kind of gives me the impression of like one of these sort of anarchist flop houses, right? You know, like it's a very bohemian setting where you have a lot of nonconformist counterculture types, right? Yeah. Who are just, like it's it's just a a meeting place for them where they're encountering each other, right? A hundred or not a hundred years earlier, forty five years earlier it would have been like anarchists and uh in in another situation it would you know would have been communists, right? But uh instead you have this Or hippies. Or hippies. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's the it's the commune sort of environment but it's in the middle of a war in a city that's constantly being bombed right so yeah so in such a case you have an arsenal in the basement right (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's another step in steinbrook's gradual a life of criminality that that he goes from his his above board life is kind of kind of seems like he's just trying to find a place for himself something that he can do to support himself like he tries to become a, a Gestapo officer. Uh, um, I, I find that whole aspect of his backstory confusing at best and suspicious at worst. How do you mean? I think he might have just told the Gestapo that under interrogation in, in order to get them to either that or he was just totally lost and grasping at straws, trying to do, looking for anything he could do that both sounded adventurous and could so support him because he obviously has a, a feel for adventure. Well, diffuse I mean, he, he bombs. Yeah, took to sea at 16 years old, uh, and he'd been in and out of the orphanage. And, and he wanted to join the military, and he wanted to join the Gestapo, uh, and then he wanted to defuse bombs. Uh, in any case, uh, that that whole part of his backstory is a little bit confusing. Well, I I don't know. It certainly fits with his overall character, right? It's sure, it absolutely does. It does. Uh, but. But the, the the general course of his life, you can see him gradually moving away from mainstream society and towards this this new life. But, you know, first with this this life of adventure and and trying to find a way to support himself, and then uh, going into the camps and taking on something of a leadership role in the camps, uh, both as a capo and uh, as a very prominent bomb disposal expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, he, he moves out of what is organized society and into the underground. But he's still still not in criminal enterprise, right? He's just kind of laying low. And then when the, the apartment gets bombed, that he's driven to this new life of capers. Which line, is not such a big leap for him, yeah. Which is not such a big leap for him. No, it's a gra- it's gradual. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's gradually brought along, but uh, the inflection points are always 
something having to do with war or Nazi society. In all these cases, he gets he gets a pretty bad deal from the war and from uh, Nazified society. The classic luckless orphan? For sure. Uh, but all along the way, I mean, he's he's obviously willing to do things that are criminal. And it just gets more and more radical as he goes along. Well, what I think is interesting, there's there's not really a good explanation for the impetus to begin collecting weapons, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, other than there are a lot of them floating around for cheap as soldiers are trying to sell things off to get train, you know, deserting soldiers are selling off their equipment to try and get train fare home. And during the mass retreats in September, there's just a lot of a lot of ammunition and weapons floating around, right? So, yeah. and and I guess I I don't understand if that's I, as as McConnell has argued to me that this is a product of the militarized upbringing of the the Hitler Youth generation, or mm-hmm. if there's something more than that. Because I mean, there's there's not a it it's a it's a ridiculous cash that they end up amassing. Here we are. Um, the gun fetish idea. Yeah, here we are. That's one true. one detonator with satchel and de- and detonating caps. One MP40, two magazines, one American submachine gun, eight hand grenades, sixteen ha- uh sixteen egg hand grenades like the small ones. 11 K98 uh, rifles, one G98 rifle, 1,895 rounds of ammunition, one captured 9mm pistol, 190 type, like 9mm ammunition, and, and one, one stolen motorcycle. <laughs> so, well, so your question is, is why, why the weapons? Why, why so many, right? Like guns are a compact, durable form of wealth in this environment. This is true. Self. There's there's going to be plenty of equity in these guns. Uh, barter economy. Uh, yep. You can read them. The, the value of weapons in this context is much higher than it might have been otherwise. Uh, you're already living an illegal life. Mm-hmm. They're illegal. It shouldn't terribly be... Or it shouldn't be a, a, a huge factor. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's money in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see what happens with the butter uh, that they it gets rancid and then they've got to cook it down in, in order to uh, make it less rancid because it's it's something that's incredibly valuable in this context, but it just doesn't keep. Uh, but guns do. Mm-hmm. So if you can turn it over into guns, then you can trade the guns and ammunition. It's like it's like a cigarette economy, but with machine gun rounds. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Yeah, I think that definitely that speaks to me more than a militarized Hitler youth culture. I wouldn't discount that element of it, but uh yeah, barter economy makes a lot of sense. The ultimate question that it comes down to is you said that you don't think that Rusenik is critical enough in areas where it could support the idea of a principled resistance and that he guides the narrative toward the this illegality terror and illegality terror illegality and resistance yeah he he just accepts 
any discussion of criminal background more or less unexamined. As evidence. Uh, yeah. What do you think of his overall argument that it is that it is at least on the uh, on the part of the I don't I don't know that he necessarily is speaking about the Russians uh, so much as he is about the uh, about Steinbuck's group and and Laurent as he comes into that orbit. Um, what do you what do you think of his argument? I guess do you do you believe that well, he carries? I, it? I might I might be giving you the impression that I disagree with him, but you know I think this is a fantastic book. <laughs> yeah. it, it, yeah. it's <laughs> really impressive. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that he really exploded the myth that the Edelweiss Pirates and Steinbrook are resistance fighters. Well, I mean, the fact that we can debate whether or not this group and that individual were in fact engaged in criminality or principled resistance or survival or whatever, um, as opposed to, and there was a monolithic block of 100 people organized around the Edelweiss pirates and Hans Steinbrook, who resisted the Nazis, uh-huh. is, is kind of a mark <laughs> of what he's accomplished with the research. Um, <laughs> I guess where where would you where would you hold out that? There, uh, there are unanswered questions, or that there's more opportunity to either approach the sources that he's worked with, or that you've seen in your work, where you, where there's room for debate. Well, there is more room to differentiate motives out of outright politically motivated resistance, uh, and you know, I I went on and on about this uh, that that he is. To make them look like criminals in order to combat them. There are questions that well, influence of the the partisan war and the way the the Gestapo is behaving here, and that gets gets back to the the attitude that uh, that they're facing up, up against criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is apparently something that digging into right. Pardon me. Isn't McConnell uh, very much? Uh, that's yeah. That's definitely his angle. Is sort of the influence of the strategy, tactics, and mentalities of the partisan war in the East, the the Bandenbekampfung, and sort of bringing those attitudes to domestic policing and during the final yeah. months of the regime. Yeah, that that does seem to be present here, uh, and and I think he he raises questions about that. Uh, this attitude of the criminality of what they were doing uh, and the way the Gestapo saw beyond the, the scope of, of political activity. Wondering if they, if they were expecting criminality and, and therefore foregrounding it uh, because it shows up in the interrogation so much. Another question that is particularly interesting to me that I, I think that Rusinik provokes is, you know, how is it that the Eastern worker community interacted with Germans? Because uh, we get plenty of glimpses of it, but almost because he's he's trying to show how separated these groups were, uh, it's not addressed as much as, as I would like to see it because it's something I'm particularly interested in. Right. And Easterners, Eastern workers uh, interact in this underground. So it raises questions about 
what role informal networks and parallel society played. And I, I think that, I guess, or is that a fair paraphrase? Oh yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I think that was probably what I found most interesting was the idea that you do get a parallel society and that it is a, a fairly rich ecosystem of act of yeah. non-state actors with a whole range of motives who are moving in this sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the wastes of Cologne as the, during the final months of the war, but then also that that more or less disappears by the end of November, that it's completely cleaned up and that uh, in, in other documents that I've looked at outside of, outside of his work, that there are the, that, this September to November period is looked at as uh, a real shock and a real wake-up call in how to manage the the domestic security of Germany, mm-hmm. uh, and that it I I believe I forget if it was Doctor Walter Albath, the Inspector of Security Police for the entire Western Districts or for Defense District Six, or Peter Nolas, both of their post-war interrogations, one of them makes a point. Well, there's a ton of Elbath because he was all over the Nuremberg trial. Mm-hmm. But um, in, I think it's in one of Elbath's interrogation, he makes the point that the events of Cologne were a shock to the entire, the entire security apparatus in the West. Right? And it, the, the full brutality of that reaction I think is sort of summarized by the ex- executions for Rusenik. And I, I don't think that he, I like it kind of covers up because, because that's his focal point of, of his investigation. I think that there's a lot covered up in terms or a lot that doesn't make the cut. I should say not covered up that uh, about just sort of the brutality of the pacification campaign. And uh, focusing in on these particular groups reveals a lot, but I think that there's more that could be done in terms of the actual structures of how that campaign is carried out. Hopefully, uh, McConnell will have more to tell us about that when his book is published. But, um, you know, I, that's something that I'm definitely very interested in. Because yeah, I, yeah. I, I, and know. how this experience changed behavior of the Gestapo more broadly later on. Later on, yeah. Or alternatively, whether this represented a momentary departure that, uh, like, I I call it the fall crisis. I think that's a term that we could coin because I think that there's an acceleration and then an immediate break and retreat from the level of terror. That is, and you know, our, our conversation about terror and that term notwithstanding, the, an acceleration, break, and retreat in the amount of terror used to bring this situation in Cologne under control and then ensure that it doesn't happen again. And yeah. there are a lot more structures that Kershaw is involved in talking about that ensure that this kind of situation does not happen again that begin to appear around the same time. And yeah. I think that's a larger point that's worth mention and attention. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, 
And and I do think that the events in Cologne are an outlier at this time. Um, and and also that it, it shapes expectations further back from the front. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that, you know, the Gestapo and Dusseldorf and, and Essen and Duisburg are all expecting that the, the survivors from them are retreating from Cologne and, and heading their way. Uh, so it shapes the way that they look at what comes later. There are two major control operations that happen in December. Uh, specifically, and again, this is referenced in, in the post-war interrogation, it's mentioned that the groups that were active, the, the groups, quote unquote, that were active in Cologne appeared further north around Essen and Krefeld uh, several months later. Mm-hmm. And then you also have these sort of major control operations. There's an entire battalion of paratroopers that are seconded to the Gestapo to shut down Krefeld for a day and just comb it over. Right. So there like there is a yeah. definite increase of coercion. Right? Yeah. Like so they are making sure that this is not going to happen again. Right? They the, the as Gutenberger puts it, German control uh and oversight will be upheld, right? So that's quite interesting. To to summarize though and draw to a conclusion, I it's, there's more points on that particular point. Any other questions? Or, or other points that this adds to our understanding of the Gestapo in the end phase? Well, uh, you know, I mean, we haven't actually talked about the whole catastrophe thing. I, I think that mm-hmm. that, that Rusnak is, is making is just really fleshing out the, the, how different this climate was, how the, the, the full weight of you know, the bombing in the front and all that hit had come together to, to create this very specific set of circumstances where these these different groups could uh, come together and, and start shooting Germans. So that's great. I think Do you like that, the term catastrophe? Society and catastrophe? I'm not sure that I support it yet. Because like like we were just saying, there is a recovery afterwards, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that, yeah. that was sort of where the question was leading, but... Um, <laughs> A document from Goebbels, I think mm-hmm. it was mid-44, but I'm not confident. And he tells everybody to stop saying catastrophe. <laughs> which, oh, really? Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is interesting. Uh, so apparently the, that word was very much present in the, the vernacular at the time. Right. A catastrophe. And Goebbels wanted them to, to stop. I think the state does way too good a job of managing the situation for it to be called a catastrophe. In, in as much as Cologne is an outlier, you really don't get catastrophe until you're up into March and April. I think you're right. What, what I think we have in Cologne is a situation where people are expecting catastrophe and the behaviors of the Gestapo seem to be trying to avert catastrophe, rising. But I don't think that the the reality is quite there yet. Right. Hmm. Otherwise, summarizing, great book, amazing amount of information, needs better organization. Expect no to doubt. expect to make your own timelines. Yes. But um, stunning don't research. Ex- don't expect an index. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> the greatest sin. <laughs> it's it's excellent. It's very well researched. The background of the background of all of this, these characters, and there's a huge cast of characters, uh, is so well developed. You, you I'm just sitting really here nodding, <laughs> putting some putting some work into it to draw your diagrams and take your notes. Uh, you can get a very comprehensive picture. Yeah. Of yeah, yeah. The situation in this very specific place in this very very specific time. But you'll you'll get more of a picture. I was thinking that people who are interested in Syria would actually get a lot out of this book. And and I think that it has a lot to tell us about how um, urban environments under extreme pressure, obviously there are some very distinct structures and, and pressures and, and, and social groups at, at work here. But it tells us a lot about human behavior under extreme circumstances. And I, I don't think that it is as big a stretch to begin slotting in different groups and different roles uh, in terms of loyalties and, and stances towards the state uh, than it might initially seem. Uh, and particularly in an urban environment like Cologne, I thought it, it's, it's kind of, it's really not like anything else that I've ever encountered as a historian, you know? Yeah, the the Stalingrad maybe like yeah, but in Stalingrad you don't have all the civilians running around mucking things up, or at least in the military histories they certainly don't make an appearance. And and you know it may be that that's an interesting question too. Sorry, I missed the interesting question. Oh, just the what role civilians played in Stalingrad, what their presence was, how they were trying to survive. Wonder if they did any rating of stockpiles yeah this whole question of sort of parallel societies mm -hmm. uh i i think that's that's the thing that comes out of this book that interested me the most that was the, I, apart from all of the information just as a researcher of nazi germany the the larger idea that in in a society under extreme pressure that you can have a completely parallel functioning society uh, that is completely separate and distinct from the state especially in a country like nazi germany was quite interesting right where everything mm -hmm. is supposed to be so regimented and the spaces where you have freedom are supposed to be so constrained that you you had this a total society or no that's a bad term because people are going to think i'm talking about totalitarianism but that you had this <laughs> parallel society is really quite something else you know i wonder if if Cologne really was unique in that respect, or if Nord and what it takes is a myth of heroic resistance and some people trying to collect money based on that myth for anyone to pay attention to it. <laughs> it, it, could, it could very well be, right? Because, I mean, who's, who's going to pay attention to a bunch of marginals, right, socially, and what they're doing in the midst of a life or death struggle between states, right? Yeah, uh, you know what? What does yeah, criminality in really warring society look the like? The big, the big dramatic story between two huge powers in an apocalyptic war, uh, and not around in the ruins, right? 
Yeah, right? <laughs> You're looking at the wrong part. Turns out the interesting <laughs> story is, in fact, underneath a rock. And on that surprise conclusion, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll be reviewing Michael McConnell's article, The Situation is Once Again Quiet. He looks at the Gestapo's actions west of the city of Cologne during the civilian evacuations of the far bank of the Rhine. That about does it for us. So once again, thank you for joining us. Until the next time. It's like the Metro 2033 game, right? Your, your currency is pre-apocalypse ammunition. <laughs>